I looked at my notes over the last several years, and it occurred to me something that was surprising, that it has been a little more than 10 years since I've done an Advent series about Advent. I've done lots of Advent series where we talk about a particular focus, but to actually come and say, what are we doing and why are we doing it, it's been 10 years. So I imagine not many of you were here in 2003, so I'm going to do something along that lines again. I was going to just take all those notes from 2003 and use them today, but I just find I can't do that. I don't believe that stuff anymore. It's just that my head keeps changing, so I had to rewrite the whole thing. So here we go. So this week, I had a couple of people ask me, over the last 10 days, a couple of people asked me, one sent an email and asked, so what is this Advent thing? What are we doing? Uh, How's it going? Why do we celebrate it? And how do people celebrate it? So I thought we would spend the time thinking about this for these weeks leading up to the Feast of Christmas. Um, And interestingly, Advent isn't really about Advent. Advent is really the Christian way of doing something much larger that is done almost universally. And so we will talk about that. There's a body of ancient wisdom that is applied to how human beings are wired that uses the annual calendar as a way of experiencing some very profound and deep spiritual truths and integrating them into our lives. And for us, in the vocabulary that we use, Advent and Lent, the Feast of Christmas and the Feast of Easter are the ways that we approach that. The intent of this rhythmic approach is to extract as much of the fruit of the divine spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, to extract as much of the fullness of the human experience as we can from these days that we get to spend on this earth. And so those who have gone before us have set a rhythm of sorts that coincides with the way that our calendar functions. Now, as we start this lesson, I'd like you to be prepared that it's going to be kind of a roundabout approach. I'm not going to come at it directly, and we're actually not even going to get to Advent today. We're going to talk about some ancient uh, Hebrew festivals, and we're going to talk about the whole concept of celebration in the first place, but we will get there. Um, however, this morning is a lot of background information, so I think background information is important. Um, I hope you do too. By coming at it this roundabout way, you're not only going to have a better understanding of Advent, but you're also going to have a better understanding of Lent and Easter, because in in essence, we're doing the same thing twice a year, and so in their basic expression, what they're trying to do is give us a deeper human focus, although they have content differences and stylistic differences, there still is the basic premise that is the same. So... Here's what Advent is at its heart. It is about giving one another the gift of perspective. At its heart, Advent is about giving one another the gift of perspective. It's about giving one another a deepened experience of the savoring of life's goodness. It's about celebrating the preparation as well as the festivities around this preparation, celebration, uh, binary approach to life. And in so doing, to give one another a gift of optimism about life, a gift of courage in the face of overwhelming troubles. Now that's the big picture behind Advent, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But I want to start by looking with a finer grain at some of the specifics. 
The word Advent itself means a coming. So when we celebrate Advent, we tell stories, and we sing songs, and we read scriptures, and these are about the coming of Christ to the manger in Bethlehem. And we remind one another to think about Christ's nativity. We remind one another to think about the spirit of Christ coming in the person of Jesus. There is that first coming. We also think about the everyday ways in which the spirit of Christ comes to us in our daily lives. The Spirit of Christ in each of us, for those who are paying attention on this spiritual journey, how do we do this? And then we think about how the Spirit of Christ will come to fulfill the longings of a wounded earth. We remember the promise of our tradition that the Spirit of Christ will come to comfort hearts that have been broken. Any heart that asks, seeks, and knocks. Any family that is torn, that is in search of restoration, any eyes that can see, any ears that can hear, the Spirit of Christ comes to them. And so we remember those themes. And during the season of Advent, we talk about these. We talk about the ways Christ has come to us. We tell stories to one another about the hope that is resident in the expectation that Christ will come tomorrow. So we see how Christ did come in a manger, how Christ will come to restore the hopes in the future of tomorrow, and how every day, even now, Christ comes to our lives. So this year, you'll notice the the banner up there, George and the worship team put together the theme of peace. And so you'll notice that the songs that we have sung and the scriptures that we have read have kind of resonated around that, elevated our vision to think about how the coming of Christ, the spirit of Christ to our hearts, evokes and promises and brings to us a place of peace. And so we begin to look for peace as that process. Those are the kinds of themes that communities of faith focus on as they observe Advent the kinds of things that we've been looking at over these last many years. But that's some of the specifics. It's also helpful to stand back a little bit and to think about the broader context behind why we're doing this thing in the first place. Why are we we organizing the calendar the way that we do? Why is it that both Jewish folk and Christian folk, and I'm not as familiar with the annual Muslim calendar, but I imagine in that tradition as well, Why is it that it has been our way to celebrate each year following a very specific, very focused rhythm? Why do we have the focal points that we have? Why do we do Advent, Christmas, and Lent, Easter? So, over the next couple of Sundays, I'm going to give a broader context behind that. It was precipitated by this email I got this week. I'm sorry, guys. This is driving me nuts. Now try it. All right, you know what their answer is? Don't do that. (laughs) I can't not do that. (laughs) All right, here's the email that I got. This is the first year that we have learned that there's a spiritual side to Advent. And we were wondering what it means and how to celebrate it. When I was growing up, we didn't do anything much more than have an Advent calendar with candy in it that we would count down the days to Christmas, and it didn't seem to have any more meaning than simply getting more excited about Christmas and more excited about presents. So, Doug, is there anything more about it? Are there things that people do? Do they do in their homes? Do they read certain Bible passages each, each day? Is there a website? Is there a book that you could recommend to read more about it? We don't necessarily want some rules to follow, but I know that's not the NRCC way anyway. But we would really like to learn how to celebrate the season. And when I read that, I just got happy, happy, happy. 
Because ultimately, when we think about Advent, we have to think about anxiety. When we think about Advent, we have to think about worry. And when we think about Advent, we have to think about stress. And we have to think about the heavy, heavy burdens that people carry. Because Advent is about, together, practicing a set of thoughts, observances, that are in effect designed to inoculate us against the toxins of stress and worry and fear and anxiety. Not during the Christmas season, but during the course of the days that we get to spend on this earth. I've spoken to several folks lately who are deepening their understanding of self-awareness through the Enneagram, and I'm very familiar with a few of the types because, you know, these are the people that I live with and love, and I've got my own type I'm becoming very familiar with. But as I've had these conversations, it strikes me that no matter how you approach it, you do essentially have to deal with fear, and you do essentially have to deal with anxiety, And you do have to deal with the stresses these create. Because it is part of the human experience to get caught up in these focal points that we have that worry us, that bring about these fear responses. We're not the first generation to have this. In the first lesson, I was talking to someone who was just diagnosed with cancer this week. And he spoke up and he said, man, I'm just so stressed about this. And as we talked, we said, this is the human condition. These troubles are part of human life. You will have heavy burdens. You will face stresses and challenges. The question for us as a spiritual people is, what do we do in the midst of these struggles and difficulties that is different, that elevates our experience of life, even in the throes of troubles? So, we will be looking at Advent as a way in which we think about and address this issue of fear and anxiety. So if you'll hang around, hang out for this whole roundabout way that I'm going to approach it, you're going to walk away, I think, that we'll, with a tool that will help you face down these toxic primal adversaries that we all face. So Advent. It's celebrated for four weeks leading up to the Feast of Nativity, and I think it's important that I use the word feast there because more commonly in the West, we have referred to the holiday as a mass. We've thought of it as a church service instead of a feast. And there's a difference. A church service that is a mass happens on a, in a church building at a place where we do it. And so we say this is the Christ mass, the Christmas. But it is more. It is actually the feast of Christ or the feast of the birth of Christ, the feast of nativity. Because there's a lot of difference between feasting And massing. There's a lot of difference between going to church and having a feast. And in its origins, Advent was preparation for a season of feasting. It wasn't preparation for a church service. It was preparation for this time in which we celebrate. You've probably heard of the 12 days of Christmas. You've heard the song on the radio, Leaping Lords and Maids a-milking and Swans a-swanning. I don't think that's a real one. I think that... But... uh, 
But you may not know where that comes from because the way that we celebrate Christmas is it starts sometime before Black Friday and it goes in this frenzied hurry and it heads all the way straight through about 10 o'clock on Christmas morning when we just drop from exhaustion after all that rush and all that preparation because now the presents are open and we think, oh my Lord, we have to eat now? And so that's the way that we've celebrated. So you don't often think in terms of the, uh, the 12 days of Christmas. But here's how it started. Christmas Day, or in some traditions, Christmas Eve, was the beginning of the feast. And the feast lasted for 12 days. And even those that took monastic orders, where they vowed that fasting was a part of their regular life, were disallowed, prohibited to fast during the season of Christmas, because, or Christmas Tide, as it was known. For these 12 days, feasting was an essential part of spiritual practice. So everyone was encouraged to feast. And that began Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, depending on the tradition, and it went straight through until January 6th, which was known as the Feast of Epiphany. So we started with the Feast of the Nativity, and we ended with the Feast of Epiphany. Now, the word epiphany means to manifest or to reveal. And it's the time in which we celebrate the arrival of the Magi. We're going to do that with the kids next week, where they'll go hunting around, they're looking for the three wise men. And what the three wise men brought is this recognition that this event that is happening in the person of Christ is not reduced just to this sectarian little group of people in this part of the world, but it's for all the people of all the nations. And the Magi were the first to recognize that. So we recognize that this promise of divine life that we experience in the person of Jesus is not just for the few. It is for all peoples of all nations. And so the same thing that was promised to Abraham at the very beginning of the story in Genesis 12, that you will be blessed, but you'll be blessed so that you can be a blessing to the peoples. So that's how we celebrate the 12 days, starting with the celebration of the birth, going all the way straight through to the Feast of Epiphany. And during that time, it has been our way to visit friends and to give kisses and to share gifts and to light fires, and to sit around those fires, and to tell stories, and to prepare foods that we don't normally eat, and to rest from work that we normally do, and to sing songs that we don't normally sing, and to wear clothes, and tell stories that we don't normally wear or tell. These are stories of remembrance, stories that stir us to savor life's goodness, And this kind of celebration does something to us. It reorients our perspective. As we're going to see next week, some forms of celebration will actually bring about dissipation. But some kinds of celebration will orient our focus in a way that is so powerful and so transformative and so helpful and that impacts us so deeply that we have put it into the calendar every year, twice every year. For the purpose of stirring us to this hope-building, life-affirming posture that then informs how we approach the rest of our year. It's a deeply human instinct, an instinct that we Judeo-Christian people share with all the peoples, all religions, in all times. And we have tended to make it an annual time to rouse ourselves to this kind of focused perspective-raising And we've typically tied it to the seasons. 
you and I live on a planet that has a tilted axis. And because the axis is tilted, we have seasons. And because we have seasons, we have developed certain patterns around those seasons. And there are times when the days are shortening, and then there are times when the days are lengthening. And there are times at pivot points when the days go from getting shorter every day to getting longer every day. And these, there are times when springtime returns, those things that have been dormant and looked as though they were dead. There is time for harvest at the end of the year. And these times have become so important for us that we have tied our perspective raising to these very primal events that are rooted to the way the planet works. And each year, it has been the ancient and the universal wisdom to set aside days to see the bigger picture behind just the fact that we're bringing the harvest in. Or see the bigger picture behind, beside just the fact that the days have now turned and the seasons are changing. But to begin to stir within ourselves this broader perspective that is almost universally rooted in this concept of hope. Hope, it turns out, is a requirement if you want to live the human life well. Hope is a requirement if you want to live the human life well. And so consequently, we have learned through these centuries and centuries and centuries of human experience to intentionally and purposefully feed hope. Yes, it is dark, we've been taught. Yes, it is cold. Yes, the crops appear that they're dead and the herds have gone. It appears that life is death. It appears that light is darkness. But even so, here in the darkness, December 22nd, around the equinox, we sing. We sing in the darkness. Even so, here in the darkness, when it appears that all is death, when it appears that all is darkness, we love. And we make love. And we give birth. And we celebrate hope and promise for tomorrow. Here in the darkness, we hope for something more, something bigger than despair. And we do this now with such pomp and circumstance that we remember tomorrow. And we remember by elevating our vision to this view of hope later. So we sing in the darkness. We light fires in the darkness. We festoon our homes in the midst of the darkness. And we gather together there in the dark and we sing these songs of hope and promise and faith. And when the planet shifts so that the days begin to lengthen and the darkness begins to recede, we remind ourselves of this great hope that defines the human experience. Now the way that we Christians do this that so many other folks throughout time have done is we sing out in the darkness is we sing out the ancient prophecies, and primarily the one that we read this morning. Some of us went to the Messiah sing-in. There's a difference between a sing-in and a sing-along, I learned. And as you listen to the texts that were sung of the Nativity season, you realize that we have been singing these songs for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, all the way back to Isaiah. And the songs go something like this. A voice cries out in the darkness. A voice cries out in the wilderness. Prepare yourself. 
we go back into our ancient poems and it says, God light is bigger than darkness. In the same way that the sun returns to give you life, God life returns to give you hope. And the ancient promises proclaim, the day will come when the mountainous obstacles before you will be brought low. And the impassable valleys that are set before you will be filled in. And a road will be set clearly before you. And if you were there at the Messiah, you remember singing those very words. God's very glory will be revealed among you. And you will see what has been hoped for in each generation. The day of the Lord is coming, it was promised. The day when justice will overcome oppression. The day when healing will overcome destruction. The day when peace will overcome war. The day when hope will overcome despair. What has been fractured will be restored. What has been lost will be found. Hope. And in that very passage, we sing, A young woman shall give birth to a son, and his name will be called God with us. And in him we will see what we had not seen. We will see that way of the Lord set before us. We will see the hope of God set before us, and we will walk that path. And so for 12 days each year, we sing in the darkness until the 6th when we sound out another truth. And we sing that nobody gets left behind. All of the peoples that God has put on this earth, all the nations, all the peoples, all the peoples of all of the nations. And so it has been our way for these 12 days to celebrate and to remind one another of truths that are brighter than darkness. To stir one another to hope that is more luminous than the night. To be with our people and to hope. To be with our friends and to anticipate and to yearn the deepest longings of the human heart, and then to raise in one another the expectancy that we do not yearn in vain. It is the practice of building hope. That's the motivation behind the special songs that we sing. It is the practice of building hope. That is the motivation behind the special clothes that we wear, the travels that we embark upon to be near those who are dear to us behind the foods that we eat that we would not normally eat. And this has been our way. This has been our tradition. It is a hope-building tradition. And we integrate it into the rhythm of our year, and we synchronize it with the rhythm of the earth. And the earth speaks to us, and our tradition speaks to us. And we instill within ourselves a deepening of hope. This began a long time before Jesus it began a long time before the Magi. It began a long time before the Christian era. It began for us way back in our Hebrew heritage. There was a calendar of feasting that was set up by the Hebrew year a long ago. Many ancient feasts. I just want to mention three of them. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a time to remember hope and to stir hope. It happened in the spring. It happened as the once-did plants began once again to start coming to life. It began as the earth began to speak the ancient truth that said hope rises even in the darkness. And we chose that time to remember. That was when we remember. And our Jewish cousins continue to celebrate this to this day. Remember the darkness of enslavement in Egypt. 
We remember the hopelessness and we remembered the bitterness and we remember the harshness, but we reminded ourselves during those days, light comes in the midst of darkness. And we remembered hurriedly eating the bread as we were getting ready to run out of town. And we remembered that the day had come and will come again. The day that we hoped for, that came on in a heated rush, and we had despaired that enslavement would ever come to an end, but divine life came for us, divine hope came for us, and so we remembered, and we celebrated, and we feasted, and we elevated our vision, and we sang songs, one of which was this, weeping and sorrow last for the night, we would sing, but joy returns, joy comes in the morning. And so early each spring we would celebrate. And early each spring we would remind ourselves of the centrality of hope in the human experience. And then the very next week, as those buds begin to bear the first fruits, we celebrated again. We celebrated the goodness of the earth. The provision of first fruits, the celebration was called. The earth had looked dead for months But it was coming alive this year yet again, speaking to us as it did of hope and promise. And so we feasted on hope. The earth awakened from its slumber, and as it did, it spoke to us. When all appears death and loss, the earth said to us. When grief and loss are your only vision, the earth said to us. Hold forth the hope that you see today. You see the leaves on the trees yet again. You see the flowers in the fields yet again. Savor life. And be grateful. As we saw last week, express your gratitude with a gift. Give something. Make a sacrifice. Express your gratitude for life with generosity. And then in the autumn, we did it all again. Feast for another full week. When the harvest fulfills the promise made in the spring, celebrate yet again. It's called the Feast of Booths. Work was disallowed. Tears were wiped away. Joy was evoked. Hope was affirmed. So go camping out in the yard. Build a blanket fort in the backyard. Go there. Do something special to remember this time, to remember this day. Eat there, visit there, sing there, say special prayers there. Celebrate the hope that year after year after year after year, you see the faithfulness of the earth that God has given us. And yes, some years crops fail. And yes, some years death of loved ones comes. And toil happens and troubles come. But again and again and again, the earth comes back to this great resounding affirmation. Once again, the earth brings forth its blessing. And we live another year. And we gather strength and we gather life another year. That you and I are here is testament to the faithfulness of the earth. That you and I are here is testament to the faithfulness of the God from which all things come. And so remember today, the day of bounty, when you faced blight and pestilence. 
Remember today, the day when you see the faithfulness of the earth on the days of hailstorms and locusts. Remember today when you lose, when you have the bounty before you, remember this day on the day that you lose a loved one. Remember today, the day in which provision is before you, when depression and anxiety threaten to eclipse your hope. And so twice a year, three times a year, purposefully give yourself to this endeavor of focusing on hope. Do it in the spring after the harshness of winter. Do it in the fall after the ingathering of the crops. Purposefully give yourself the gift of a higher perspective. There is more going on here than grain being stored in the barn. The promise of hope is being set before you that is true now, and it will be true in February, and it will be true in August, it will be true in October. Give yourself the gift of this higher-minded outlook. Hope is truth. But just because it's truth doesn't mean that you and I always see it. Because that truth can often get pushed out when life pushes your eyes down to this narrow, focused patch of ground right in front of you. Keep going, keep going. Go to the job, go to the work, get the groceries, take care of the plumbing. When, when that's what life becomes narrowed to, we will forget that hope is truth. And when life pushes your nose to the grindstone and you have to grind and push and go and go, it's very easy to forget that life is hope. And hope is truth. And so these times in the year, bring yourself to remember. Bring yourself to dress differently and to eat differently and to sing differently and to tell stories differently. Mark this time as separate. Feast and watch and share and laugh at Bob. Do these things now because it's going to matter and because hope is truth. Now, as I said, I haven't gotten to Advent yet. And, uh, you know, when you get to your 13-page limit, you know you're going to have to stop soon. So here's where we haven't gotten. We haven't gotten to Advent, but here's where we have gotten. Celebration is a gift. It is a gift of hope. It is the gift of optimism. It is a gift, but it is much more than the way that we do gifts. Next week, we're going to talk about the difference between the ancient wisdom around celebration and often how we fall into celebration. One brings great perspective. One brings great dissipation. When we give gifts together, that can be a wonderful and precious thing. It can also be a toxic and burdensome thing. When it is a precious and wonderful thing, It works with this season of hope-affirming. It could be a moment in which we stir ourselves to generosity in a way that challenges our fear or challenges our stinginess. It can be an affirmation of hope. Gift-giving can be a way of saying, I love you, and I love that I get to spend these times that I get on the earth with you. It can be a very precious part of this season. Gifts can be wonderful. But honestly, the focal point of Advent isn't about gifts. It's about the gift of hope. 
It is about the gift of a bigger and truer and more beautiful way of being on the earth. It is about the gift of a bigger and truer and more beautiful way of living out the few moments that we get on this planet. It's about giving ourselves and to give one another the gift of hope. You're going to face anxiety. You're going to worry. You're going to stress. Burdens are going to come. Trials and difficulties are also part of this human experience. And the way you experience life in the midst of those trials will be determined by the place hope has in your consciousness. Is your perspective down to the ground? Is it only at the troubles? Or do you have a hope that transcends that? And the gift of our ancient tradition is to say twice a year, we come and we elevate our vision so that the rest of the year we remember. So that the rest of the year we live bathed in, infused in, informed by the perspective of hope. Advent is one of those times for us. It's a time for giving the gift, the vision of God that bathes us in hope. It is giving the gift of a different way of being on the earth, a different way of seeing one another, a different way of living in our jobs and in our homes, with our loved ones, with our troubles. So, Spirit of God, may we, even in a culture that does everything but prepare ourselves to celebrate. May we find in this season that is of such great import a way to see more clearly, a way to elevate our vision, to more deeply experience life and vitality. And may ours be times of focus and life. Be it so, Lord. Amen.